The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. You would turn to Philippians, the fourth chapter. We'll be there in a few moments in Philippians chapter 4. I'm thankful to be here with you this morning and thankful for your presence, especially uh, that of our visitors. We want you to know especially your honored guest, and we'd love to see you back in any opportunity that you might have. It's our will here to, desire here to, do everything in accordance with God's will. Whatever we do in word or in truth needs to be done all in the name of the Lord, and we give thanks to Him while doing that. And so if you have any questions or comments about what we've done here or what we teach, we'd love for you to ask those questions after services. We'd love to sit down across from each other with an open Bible and study God's Word. In Philippians, the fourth chapter, we read a very familiar context where the Apostle Paul speaks of an extremely impressive part of his character that he had developed. He says in verse 10 of Philippians chapter 4, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly now that at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere. And in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's especially that 13th verse that is most familiar to uh, us and perhaps just those in the world. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is quoted oftentimes. And oftentimes, most times, I would suggest to you out of context. Here in the context, the Apostle Paul is speaking of especially some spiritual quality that he has, and it's the quality of contentment that he has. And he can be content through Christ who strengthens him. A phrase all things used in the Greek language, and we see it throughout the Bible, it especially had reference to the context of all things. We kind of studied that uh, last Sunday evening in regard to Jesus' discussion in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 33, and a few verses after that of swearing. He condemned swearing, and he says don't swear at all, but at all had reference to the very context of the flippant swearing. And all things here has reference to the ability of Paul to accomplish the spiritual feat of contentment, no matter how great things were and no matter how, no matter how bad things were. And that really, the section on contentment and the ability of Paul to do all things in contentment through Christ who strengthens him, is really almost a parenthetical thought because he begins with verse 10 by noting the ability of the Philippians to support him in the gospel. And he wants to bring that up and he'll pick back up with that very thought process in verse uh, 14, praising the Philippians for their good work in supporting Paul, who was not just the preacher of the gospel, but an apostle of Christ. In verse 17, he noted, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. And so he starts this section in verse 10, noting the fact that they had supported him, not with the mindset of emphasizing how uh, thankful he was just for the very inherent fact of material blessings that they had a part in as if that's all he thought about and that's all that it took to make him happy or contented. That's why he goes into this discussion of contentment. I'm not bringing this up because I'm so focused on material things and life would have been terrible unless you sent me this gift. 
I'm bringing this up because I want to especially praise you and note an encouragement that God has received this, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice in verse 18. And I am thankful not of the gift, but of the fruit that abounds to your account. Paul always thinking of others, and especially the spiritual importance. Nevertheless, a uh, most important principle is discussed by him in that thought between getting to the point of praising the Philippians for the sharing in that gift. And that's the thought of contentment. This is something that is commanded by God in Scripture, both in the negative and in the positive. The opposite of contentment is condemned. Hebrews 13 and verse 5 says, let your conduct be without covetousness. And he goes on to give the command of contentment. Be content with such things as you have. In Luke 12 and verse 15, Jesus said, take heed and beware of covetousness, the opposite of contentment. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verses 6 through 8, he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We can't carry anything out. And with food and clothing, these we shall be content. Christians are to be people that are content. Contentment here in Philippians chapter 4 comes from the Greek word autokris. And it's a compound word in the Greek from autos, which means self. And then a word archeo, which means to be sufficient. And so literally... This Greek word has the meaning of self-sufficiency, adequacy, needing no assistance is what Vine suggests. And so Paul is saying that I'm self-sufficient. And he's not saying that he's sufficient within himself in regard to all he needs is himself. That's really an Epicurean philosophy where people thought that they didn't need anything because themselves was enough. That's not what Paul is saying. He is self-sufficient, as the term indicates, but the sufficiency of self, being independent from all outward circumstances, which is the point, doesn't come from him. It comes from what is within him, which verse 13 indicates is ultimately Christ. Galatians 2 and verse 20, the Apostle Paul mentioned that it is not him that lives, but Christ lives in him. And when Paul says that I'm content, as we give the more literal definition of it, I am self-sufficient. He's saying that what I have within myself in relation to the Lord, as he said in verse 4, I can rejoice in the Lord always. That's enough. And it's important to note that in regard to contentment because self-sufficiency in regard to the word translated into contentment encourages us because it is the idea of having a a self-sufficiency regardless of anything going on around us. So Paul says... I know how to abound, but I know how to be abased. When things are good, that is when I have a sufficient amount of supply, like you have supplied me with, Philippians, but also before you ever sent it, I was content. When I have been at my worst point in my ministry, Paul says, I am sufficient. I don't need it. I'm okay. I know how to be content. And so it doesn't matter how good things are going for us or how difficult they are get as we live this life under the sun in an unfair uh, environment, an environment which is often filled with time and chance, and therefore bad things can happen to good people and good things can happen to bad people. We can be even keeled throughout it all. We can be sufficient within ourselves, that is, if we have Christ. But this is not always an easy thing, and it's not an innate quality. Paul doesn't say that I'm content because I was made that way. No one is. Not even Christ was content because 
he was inherently content in the flesh as if it was something that came with humanity. It's actually the opposite in the lust of our flesh that are often the problem with those who can't be content. Those are more of natural inclinations in regard to our material man relating to the material universe. But I want us to notice in verse 11 that he said, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. We've got to learn contentment. So what I want to do is offer a few things as it pertains to the Christian life that we can understand and apply to where we can learn contentment like Paul was content. I want us to consider firstly that we can learn contentment by first coming to a full understanding of and appreciation of our spiritual journey. That is confessing that we are pilgrims. And Hebrews the 11th chapter, the apostle uh, or the Hebrew writer gets to probably the most notable character under the Old Testament scriptures in Abraham, whom the Jews called father and we call father by faith. And in verse 9, it says that he dwelt by faith in the land of promises in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. And so Abraham lived a nomadic lifestyle. He didn't have a place to call home. He left Ur the Chaldees as his home to live in tents for the rest of his life. And he never received that promise. But I want us to notice in verses 13 through 16 of Hebrews chapter 11, why he was able to do what he did. And it's not because he always longed for the Ur of the Chaldees that he left, but it's because he had a self-sufficiency, a sufficiency within himself in regard to his faith and the relationship he had with God and the promises. And it's because he confessed that he was on a journey, a pilgrimage, and he was indeed a pilgrim. He confessed that and he embraced what he looked for. In verse 13, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. Verse 16, but now they desire a better, that is, heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I want us to know, firstly, what is said there in the 13th verse, that he had not received the promises, but he saw them afar off and embraced them. That means that he embraced some valuables and a system of values that he couldn't see. It wasn't tangible. And he would, in fact, never come to the realization of it. But he embraced the spiritual treasures that God had promised, the spiritual city that he'd never see in his physical life. He would go throughout his entire life living in tents as a nomad, never realizing those promises. But even though he saw them afar off, he embraced them. He welcomed them. That's what we need to do. We need to embrace the spiritual treasure. We need to forget about the physical life. This isn't our home. We're strangers and pilgrims and therefore embrace, hug, come to a full appreciation of and prioritization of those spiritual treasures. He noted the true valuables and his value system changed when he left, when God called him. And that's how he was able to be content. Verse 13 also indicates, though, the consequence of this confession and embracing of a new value system. It says in verse 13, he embraced those things and confessed that he was a stranger and pilgrim on the earth. If these things in front of me are no longer my value system, I don't care about them. 
and that which is spiritual and afar off, which I'll never end up seeing, not in this lifetime, then what does that mean about my existence here? It's not about this life. This is not my world. I'm just passing through. It's not my home. C.S. Lewis noted this in a famous quote from him. If we find ourselves, he says, with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And that sound logic. There's a reason why people strive so much for so insignificant things. And it's because they're seeking that sufficiency, contentment. They want to be satiated and filled. And there's a reason why they'll never stop doing that because they'll never be filled. You can't find that fulfillment in this life. It means we're made for another world. In verse 14, it says that they seek a homeland. They declare that plainly. In verse 15 says they could have returned to or of the Chaldeans and that would have showed a discontentment. But by deciding not to return but staying with God, they showed a self-sufficiency. In what way? In their relationship with God and those promises they had embraced, which were afar off. We need to do the same thing. Jesus said in Luke 12 and verse 15, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. This can only be realized when we understand the physical world is not our home. It's not our permanent dwelling. It's a temporary stay. And a temporary stay in the greatest degree. This is barely even a fraction of our existence And when we come to that realization, then we know the things in the material world hold no true value and we cannot find fulfillment in them. Contentment will be with the spiritual matters. We know that our citizenship is in heaven. As Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 says, just the chapter before Paul talked about learning to be content, he said, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21 of chapter 3 in Philippians, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Since our citizenship is in heaven, there are desires in our thoughts dwell, our focus dwells. And we can be content in this physical life, not having very much or having a lot, because we know either way it doesn't matter. We're laying up spiritual treasures, not on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but in heaven where nothing can take away those spiritual treasures. We need to confess our journey as pilgrims and strangers if we're to be content in this life. If we think or if we have a subconscious thought or feeling that this is what it's all about, then we're going to fail in contentment. We'll really never be happy. And in relation to this, when we understand we're strangers and pilgrims here, then we're going to prioritize spiritual things. We're not going to worry about, to that degree, growing our bank account or our estate. We're not going to worry about growing our family in some physical way. We're not going to to worry about our retirement and we're not going to to worry about our career. We're not going to worry about all of those things. While those hold importance and it's not wrong to focus on those things to the degree in which Jesus would suggest is appropriate, that's not our ultimate focus. Our priority is growing spiritually. We remember, as quoting earlier from Luke twelve fifteen, Jesus says that life does not consist in the abundance of things which He possesses, not in material things. Then, of what does it consist, Jesus? After speaking a parable about covetousness and about an individual as a rich man who had sought sufficiency and contentment and 
security and physical matters. And he built up his barns to store all of his crops. And, and he thought that he could take his ease, eat and drink and be merry. God called him a fool and said, your soul is required of you. And Jesus applies it in verse 21. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This life does not consist of the abundance of physical possessions. It consists in the abundance of spiritual possessions, being rich toward God. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6 and verse 20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, the apostle Paul spoke to wealthy Christians and he didn't condemn them for their wealth. He didn't say that money was evil. He actually said the love of money is evil. You can be a rich individual, the richest of rich individuals and get to heaven it's just extremely difficult. And Jesus says in Matthew 19, it's actually impossible without God. But it's also impossible without God to get to heaven as a poor person. Riches just add that struggle, even though they're not inherently sinful. So Jesus addresses, or Paul addresses in 1 Timothy 6, rich Christians without a condemnation for their riches, but with an encouragement to not let those riches get in their way and to instead prioritize spiritual growth. And that would include their unrighteous mammon, as Jesus describes it in another place in Luke chapter 16. And they would be able to use that which is physical for spiritual wealth. He said, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. And he shows how that would manifest itself. You trust in God, not the riches. So let them do good that they may be rich in good works ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. They use their riches not to accumulate more riches, but to lay up heavenly treasure. An individual who is seeking that spiritual growth is going to be accomplishing the same thing that Abraham was accomplishing in Hebrews 11, as the Holy Spirit indicated, embracing those things afar off, confessing that he's a stranger and a pilgrim in this earth and therefore working toward that city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. The Apostle Peter in his second epistle, as we've been studying, noted that when he says in verse 8, if these things are yours and abound concerning those virtues added to their faith, you'll neither be unbarren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Abraham was the opposite of being short-sighted. He saw the promises afar off. He saw the city afar off. And he traveled and traveled and traveled all his life. And never did he get close enough to touch those promises. He saw them afar off. But that's the point. He never got lost looking down at his feet. He never got lost looking at his physical possessions or turning and looking backwards. He always had that sight that looked beyond you know, that's Jesus's contentment pattern in Matthew, the sixth chapter to prioritize spiritual growth and therefore not be short sighted, but look toward the spiritual promises. He speaks of worry in Matthew six, never uses the word contentment or self-sufficiency, although he does say that tomorrow's worries are sufficient for their own. He speaks of worry, though, which is the opposite of contentment. And we need to understand the potent truth that Jesus points out here in Matthew 6, that worry is sinful. There's healthy worry as it pertains to spiritual things. We, we need to be 
uh, having a healthy concern or worry, if you will, from falling short from God and all of those matters. And, and we may have a hint of worry here or there, but the worry Jesus is talking about is the worry which takes your focus away from the goal. And he says, don't worry. Worrying is sinful. If we do something Jesus said not to do, we sin. And this is what he says in verse 31. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For after these things, the Gentiles seek. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. This is his pattern. This is how you achieve that worry-free life. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And I want us to understand, as he pointed out earlier about laying up physical treasure, don't do that, lay up heavenly treasure. He's not talking about an abundance of things here. He's speaking of necessities. People worrying about necessities. I'm not worrying about getting my 401k completely full so that I can have a, a rich retirement or whatever it may be. I'm not worried about, you know, winning the lottery, so to speak, in the stock market and, and getting lucky when I take this risk. I, I'm not worried about that. I'm just worried about the clothes on my back and the food on my table. And Jesus says, don't worry. So even in regard to needs, we need to be content. We may be lacking in necessities. We need to be content and understand and trust God will take care of that if we seek first the spiritual things. We prioritize his kingdom. We prioritize becoming partakers of his righteousness through faith in the gospel. And as we confess our pilgrimage and we prioritize spiritual growth, then we need to be able to, in our maturity, be able to differentiate between our wants and our needs. That's a huge key to contentment. He says, your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. Contentment does not mean that you don't have necessities, that problems won't come if you don't have the necessities. Contentment speaks of a trust in God, but also a self-sufficiency in spiritual matters where even if, like Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, who didn't have the necessities and died because of his illness, was still content. And that contentment was realized as his faith became sight in Abraham's bosom. But even though we certainly have needs, it is important that we distinguish between our wants and our needs. And in an affluent country like we live in, that can become increasingly difficult as we continue our life on this earth. Because what are our needs are not always what we actually realize them to be. And luxuries and things we get used to and just take for granted, we think of as necessities. When we've got brethren that we are uh, supporting a brother in Africa we're supporting, which he gives us these reports which really blow us away from time to time. They know the difference between wants and needs. And sometimes we need to humble ourselves and come to that realization. And I would suggest to you if we're incapable of doing that, we're not going to be able to be content. We've got to differentiate between our wants and our needs. Back in First Timothy, we looked at this passage earlier. In First Timothy chapter 6, the Apostle Paul, once again speaking of riches, and encouraging the rich Christians to be trusting in God and not those riches, first spoke about contentment and its need, and then condemned the love for money that came from discontentment. And verse 6 of 1 Timothy 6, he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. The, the bare necessities, that is something we should be content with. But notice, he says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some, having strayed from the faith, have strayed from the faith in their greediness 
and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. He's saying that if you fail to realize all you need are the bare necessities, all you need are the things like food and clothing, then contentment's going to be difficult. Your spiritual life's going to be difficult. And I want us to notice in verse 6, he speaks of godliness with contentment. That's exactly what Abraham had. He was focused on the spiritual matters, focused on following Jehovah, and was content with what he had because of his focus on Jehovah. Those who are mindful of God and the spiritual things can be successful like Abraham. But if we can't differentiate between what is excess and what is the necessity, then not only is contentment going to be increasingly difficult, but the consequence of contentment being increasingly difficult is a pretty sorry life to live. I want us to notice that there in verses 9 and 10, he certainly notes that living spiritually and following God is going to be very difficult if you start loving money because that's where temptations come in abundance. You're going to do what you want if that's your focus. And sometimes accumulating wealth will take some ungodly measures. Not always. You can be rich and still be faithful to God. But we see the corruption in the world today. And so it's increasingly difficult for those who seek seek riches to be faithful to God. But I want us to notice what he says at the end of verse 10. Those people who seek those riches, and they make their life about that. They're just seeking ultimately sufficiency in these things, and they, they gain what they look for, and then they need a little more. And it continues like that. That's the pattern. It says they pierce themselves through with many sorrows. That's a difficult life to live. Just recently... Uh, scrolling through my Facebook news feed, there was a random um, ad for a, a, a series of interviews that someone had done with some celebrities, just about anything about life. And one of them was Jim Carrey. I read a, uh, just a small excerpt from that, and he was talking about how he reached this spiritual enlightenment, if you will, that life is really about nothing because he had been so successful in his career. He has all these uh, awards and riches, and, and yet he's not happy. And he kind of reached an important point in his life. In regards to that realization, it was just completely out of context because what he should be seeking is a spiritual riches. And his conclusion was life is pointless. But there's a lot of times where we hear about celebrities like him and, and ironically comedians who seem to be happy and they want to make other people happy by making them, them laugh and such are actually the people who are victims of the greatest forms of depression. And we wonder, how could that be? You've got all this money, you've got all this fame, you've got all this wealth, and and you could get even more throughout your career, and you're depressed because that lifestyle is sorrowful. And it's because you, you think you'll be content if you get a little more. I get this promotion, and I have this salary, I'll make a little more, and I'll be content. Just need that much. You spend a couple of years under that promotion, and you're going to want more as well. Contentment will never come because there will always be the adage to the appetite and it will grow beyond the ability to be satiated continually. That's how it works. A Greek philosopher, Epicurus, was asked about the secret to happiness and he said this profound thing, add not to a man's possessions, but take away from his desires. And while he was not a Christian and his focus was not in the spiritual context, that's a a pretty profound statement. What's the key to happiness? We could say, what is the key to contentment? Don't add to your possessions, take away from your desires. 
we give ourselves a lot of sorrow and heartache when we want something that we're not going to be able to attain, at least not as soon as we want to obtain it. But if we never had the desire for that thing, we never had the desire for that new car or that race or that new gun or whatever it may be, then we wouldn't have the difficulty. We wouldn't lay asleep at night dreaming about it. We wouldn't be worried about making more money to get that and buy that. We make contentment so difficult when we can't differentiate between what we need and what we want. That was the rich young ruler's problem. Remember, he went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. Evidently, he thought that he needed that or else he wouldn't have valued it above his spiritual needs. Because he didn't differentiate between his wants and his needs, he was not able to be faithful to Christ. You know, along with that idea of differentiating between our wants and needs comes the need to put away envy because we see those people who have the things we want and we're conflating that want with a need and then that leads to envy and that leads to further confusion and difficulty spiritually. Asaph in Psalm 73 said, Truly God is good to Israel to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He lost his focus and almost fell short spiritually when he longed after what the ungodly had. We need to understand our wants and needs and be content with what we have in our necessities. You know, also, as we walk this pilgrim life, we need to come to the understanding that perception is not reality, not always reality. If we're not careful, we're going to start interpreting our circumstances, which are outward. And contentment is about self-sufficiency independent from the outward circumstances. Well, we're going to start interpreting those outward circumstances through the lens of the world, not seeing the unseen, instead just seeing what's right in front of us. And we're going to have the perception that our state is lesser than what it actually is. If all we see is a physical lens, we see through a physical lens, then we're not going to be able to be content. Because what is most important, as we've already indicated, is not seen. But not only that, the perception others have of us is not reality. Sometimes it may be, maybe they hit the nail on the head. But more often than not, it's not reality. But we let that get to us. I'm too worried about what others think of me. You know, I know what they perceive me to be, and I know that's not true. You know, but it's really eating me up inside. Well, it doesn't matter. Perception is not reality and we need to have the ability to pause and take a step back and see the big picture not the big picture of physical life the big picture of existence and that's going to allow us to understand that things are not always as they appear to be we see an example of this i think in second corinthians chapter six the apostle paul is speaking of his apostolic ministry as he's defending himself ultimately against his opposition and encouraging the Corinthians to be reconciled to God through his teaching. He says in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 6, We give no offense in anything, but that our ministry may not be blamed. In all things we commend ourselves as ministries of ministers of God. And he goes through various uh, things in a list. But in verse 8, he picks up with an interesting list. And we might call them paradoxes, because they are self-contradictory. They don't kind of fit together, but he says that they're both true at the same time. And it shows us, I think, that perception is not reality. And, and while this applies to the apostles, it certainly can apply to us. Because while they were the apostles, they were Christians, and we're going to have to go through a lot of things they went through as well. Notice in verse 8, he says, By honor and dishonor, 
by evil report and good report as deceivers and yet true. And so this comes from the perception that others have of them by honor and dishonor. You see, some places I go and I'm honored and other places I go and I'm dishonored. People, people look at me as if I'm a plague to the earth and then people praise me and they're encouraged by my presence and they love me, my brethren who are faithful in Christ. And it's not that one is true and the other is not, but Paul's able to see that while I'm dishonored over here, I know that I'm worthy of the honor over here. I know that I'm appreciated. I know that ultimately above all else, I'm honored by God. He's been receiving evil reports, and that's the whole thing he's dealing with in 2 Corinthians. The false apostles are basically talking trash about him to the Corinthians. But he knows that he has a good report from God and from other brethren. That's enough for him. He knows people call him a deceiver, yet he knows he's speaking the truth. And then he speaks about things that hit a little closer to home that he has to deal with within his own mind. He speaks of being unknown and yet well-known. I want people to know that I'm an apostle of the Lord and I'm doing so much for the kingdom. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 that I labored even more than the rest of the apostles. I want people to know this. I'm unknown. But he's well-known to God. He's well-known to his brethren. He says, as dying and behold, we live. It's difficult doing what Paul and the other apostles did. But he knows that he's growing. Second Corinthians 5, he talked about that. Um, in Second Corinthians 4, he says he's chastened yet not killed. People look down on him because he was going through such pain and anguish as if his God was punishing him for wrong he did. But he knows that that's just the love of the Lord and he still lives. He's not killed. As sorrowful, yet he's always rejoicing. How can he do that? As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing and yet possessing all things. See, he didn't have much, but perception is not reality. He knew that he was abundantly rich in Christ Jesus. We need to know these things. We need to be able to see life through the spiritual lens. Second Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. We need to look at life in that way. I know that perception is not reality, but not only just with physical possessions, but relationships. And so that's what Paul dealt with in verse 8, by honor and dishonor, so on and so forth. Sometimes I think we struggle living according to the principle set forth by Christ in Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Enter by the narrow gate, few who go in by it, not by the wide gate where many go in. It is human tendency naturally to want to be with people, to want to interact with people, to want to be in the crowd and be accepted. And that's not how it's going to work with living a Christian life. We'll be accepted by those who have accepted Christ, but we're still in the minority. And sometimes it's difficult, especially for younger Christians uh, living in, in times of, of the, the, the uh, influence from their peers and peer pressure and stuff and just wanting to be liked, especially in the, the age we live in of social media. That's really a big struggle. But perception is not reality. Yes, I may be in the minority here, but look who's on my side. Sometimes we struggle about sticking out and being different. First Peter 3 and verse 4 spoke of how the Gentiles think it's strange that we don't run with them in the same flood of dissipation. And we don't want to be strange. We want to fit in. It's difficult. We need to be content with where we are in that regard. We need to be content living as God calls us to live. And that's going to only happen by knowing perception is not reality. The reality is, while we're in the minority here, God is on our side. Paul said no one stood with him at his defense in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 16, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, verse 17. I'm reminded of when Elisha encouraged in 2 Kings chapter 6 his servant when the Syrian army surrounded them. 
And he answered to his servant in 2 Kings 6, 16, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with him. I can imagine the confusion on his face. And that's when Elijah prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So perception is not reality. If God is on our side, who cares who else is not? And we need to also, along with that, knowing perception is not reality, be able to praise God in every single circumstance. Contentment is about a sufficiency within self that is independent of outward circumstances, which means no matter what those outward circumstances are, as Paul said, being abased or abounding, that we can be sufficient and we praise God for that. And we know those to be spiritual. In Romans 8 and verse 38, Paul said, I'm persuaded that neither death or life, angels, principalities, powers, or things present or things to come, hide or depth or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we're content with that. And we're able to praise God when things are difficult because we're not taken away from His love. No one can separate us from that. Nothing can separate us from that. And it'll come from the ability to praise God in those circumstances, even the negative circumstances, knowing that those things can't take away our spiritual treasures, but also having the more mature knowledge of knowing that those negative circumstances not only can't take those things away from me, but they can actually, if we rely upon the power of God, supply more spiritual treasure to our existence. And so no matter how difficult things get, we praise God in every circumstance. And the person who has the ability to do that certainly has learned or is learning to be content. Reminded of Job and all that he went through in Job chapter 1, how he lost his estate, he lost his wealth, he lost his servants, he lost his animals, he lost his family and eventually would lose his health. And it said in Job 1.20, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He was able to praise God in that circumstance. And in all these things, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Note the word that he uses. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is the Greek word uh, eulogio, and it sounds familiar to the word we use, eulogy. And that's where our word comes from. The root is this Greek word, eulogio. It literally means, as Vine defines it, to speak well of. It comes from a word which means well and logos, which means a word. It means to speak well of. When we bless God, we praise God, we're speaking well of Him. We're ultimately highlighting how good God's character is. We see that in Ephesians, the first chapter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And he's speaking well of God in his character and what he's blessed us with in his grace and mercy. And so a eulogy at a funeral speaks well of the person who has passed. And that's what Job's doing. But how can he speak well of God when all of that just happened to him? He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He didn't understand fully why the things that were happening to him were happening to him. And I don't think he understood fully how these things would turn out for any good in his life. But what he didn't fail in was his trust in God. And so he blessed God. God, I'm speaking well of you and your character, even though bad things just happened to me. I still have trust in who you are. It reminds us 
of the apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh when Paul asked for it to be removed from him and Christ said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And he says, therefore, I'd gladly rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He praised God even in the negative circumstances because he knew what God could do with them. In Hebrews 12, the Hebrew writer speaks of the chastening of the Lord and about how no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful, but it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We may have something bad happen to us, and it's not because God's punishing us, but he's wanting us to grow spiritually. So we praise him for the opportunity to do so. You know, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, when David was being punished for his sin and his child was killed, he, after hearing of that news, changed his clothes and went and worshiped God. He praised God even in that negative circumstance. Romans 8 verse 28 tells us, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And while all things of that passage, as we indicated before, I think is limited to the purpose of God's plan of salvation, it includes in the very context the fact of suffering. From chapter 5 all the way to its conclusion in chapter 8, he speaks of the fact of suffering and how it's for our good as Christians. So we praise God always and in everything. And lastly, we learn to be content very quickly by relying on the strength of Christ. He said there in Philippians 4 and verse 13, after he said, I have learned whatever state I am to be content, he explains the power behind his ability. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Again, his contentment is a self-sufficiency, but it's a sufficiency within self as it pertains to who is in him. As Christ lives in him by faith, Galatians 2 and in verse 20. The very context preceding this speaks really of what he means about Christ strengthening him. As he noted what he left to gain Christ in Philippians 3 and verse 7, to gain the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord, to be found in him, verse 9 of Philippians 3, not having his own righteousness from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. He speaks of wanting to have the power of his resurrection and knowing that, and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. That's what he means when he says, through Christ who strengthens me. He's been the one who has received the righteousness, God's righteousness by faith, his plan of making him righteous. He submitted to in Christ. And now he's in fellowship with Christ. The power of his resurrection is discussed in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 in regard to the resurrection to a new life in Christ. He raised us up to seat us in the heavenly places in Christ. And that's giving strength to Paul that he's not that same man. He's a new man. He has hope. And he has the hope ultimately of the resurrection of the dead. So he rejoices in the Lord always, verse 4 of chapter 4. He's strengthened through that knowledge and the inner sufficiency of spiritual blessings being in Christ and Christ in him. And therefore, he's content in all matters. Even as he wrote this epistle in prison, he noted in the first chapter in verses 12 through 18, how he rejoiced that the gospel was furthered, that it was being preached. And a word, this is what Paul meant in Philippians 4, 13 and Chapter 1 in verse 21, he said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because his whole focus and value system involved Christ, then he was able to be content. He said in 2 Timothy 1.12, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Unless you have that relationship with Christ and you have those spiritual blessings the confidence of the fellowship of Christ, and therefore you're being transformed as you allow Him to take control of your life. Unless that is 
your strength, you will fail to learn contentment. We hope that this lesson has been beneficial to you this morning. We want to offer you an invitation, really an invitation in context of this morning's study to a contentment of life. And that's by gaining Christ and therefore being strengthened by Him. You do that by being baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins and you'll become that heir of the eternal inheritance. If you've not done that, we urge you to do so. If there's any other spiritual need, though, that we can assist you with, we invite you as well to come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.